Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. You two were right on time. I was way off, but whatever. Or through the power of the internet, we've found latency and we all actually clapped at the exact same moment in time. The most likely scenario, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is no now. Only then. Only then. <laughs> I mean, have you ever really oh. thought about like time, man? Yeah, man. It's it's all just change conversation. It's just all perception, you know? It's like money. Like what even is money? It's a human construct. Oh man. <laughs> Ooh. Welcome back to the game, Keithley. Hi. How you doing? Uh, I'm great. I'm good. I'm good. It's it's been a minute since since I saw you. I know you and Sean got together, but yeah, that was a good conversation. It was fun. We've it's had, fun. Uh, it, uh, yeah. It's um, this is now. I've I think I've doubled my quota in for this <laughs> quarter. <laughs> Here's what you do. Oh. You set the bar real low. And then you encourage everyone else to take the high road. That way there's more room for me and less traffic on the low road. <laughs> Perfect. <clears throat> I have, uh, uh, speaking of time, I have a short time that I can be here. Today. A hard out. Uh, I have a hard out. I have a meeting. Um, as, as they seem to seem to appear all the time, uh, it's a good meeting. Meetings though. are like gremlins. Gonna... <laughs> don't no. feed them after dark. They come up. <laughs> yeah. Don't feed them. <laughs> don't feed the Mogwai. What time, what time, uh, it was, a, is it feed them after midnight? What time does after midnight end? Like when can you start feeding them oh, again? The Mogwai? I, uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's exactly uh, at seven o'clock. That's when the new day begins. Seven a.m. Yeah. That's when the new day begins. Right. That's Mogwai law. Mogwai law. So, so do they observe daylight saving time, or or are they like permanently on UTC or something? Uh, they're on Mogwai standard time. Okay. Which is a <laughs> perpetually depend, changing depends time on... cycle. Actually, it's sort of a rotating time cycle. <laughs> Like Arizona, unless you're in, mm-hmm. unless you were in certain counties in Indiana, right, 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 right. yeah. <laughs> uh, Gizmo turns out is highly litigious, a highly litigious uh, uh, gremlin, and a master litigator. <laughs> it's like the Better Call Saul of mm-hmm. of the gremlin world. Yeah. yeah, if you need something done, okay. If if you need. <laughs> If you need this, he's the wolf. You know, if you need this handled, you call in the wolf, it's going to get handled. You just have to, uh, you just have to show him videos of Rambo. I understand these are very nice blankets, but your Uncle Marcellus can get you nicer blankets. (laughs) 
So what are we talking about today? Gremlins. <laughs> Daylight savings time gremlins. and gremlins. I don't know. Gremlins. Time, gremlins. Did we, did we officially abolish daylight savings time? Or wait, no. The plan was to just say daylight savings time is always now. Was that the plan? It's so confusing. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Which one did we pick? We picked one, right? Didn't we? Did I we? thought this was recent. What? Isn't this? This is news. Yeah, like in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I didn't hear. Yeah, we about just this. we decided like, we decided that we were done with the with the shenanigans. Us, like the three of us, or no, like um, <laughs> the the United States government, they agreed on something, I, and and actually possibly something that I could jump on board with and agree with also. Like, <laughs> well, and, and, until you realize you have to go back and fix all those applications that handle daylight savings time to mm. no longer handle it or. Handle mm-hmm. it only in the circumstances in which it needs to be. Yeah, never mind. It's still going to oh, be a nightmare. I leave that in. I leave that in the operating system. Let the operating system handle it. Not my problem. <laughs> it's uh, it's Y two K all over again. You're just going to be in there changing things that use two digits to now use four. Mm-hmm. There are some countries that don't do daylight savings every year. Yes. They just do it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And some of those countries don't even say that they're going to do it until like a couple days before. I could not imagine being somebody who like schedules airline. Cause you probably can't. It's like, well, we don't know what time it'll be. It'll either be three or four. Mm-hmm. Not sure. Mm-hmm. Are, are these like big countries or tiny little countries or. I'm not sure. I was, I was talking to a guy who used to work for TWA and he was talking about how much of a nightmare it is. So now that I'm reaching back to TWA and half the people on here have never even heard of the airline. <laughs> it, but he, he was, there's probably a lot less countries that do that, hopefully, than what did. But I did go to look it up to see if countries still did it. And yes, there are countries that still do it. But I didn't really pay attention to who they were because I just didn't care. I looked this up because it was germane. I looked this up and it's like some chunk of Europe does DST. America, obviously the vast majority of America does DST. Uh, and that's about it. And then like a little, like one or two countries in like South or Central America, I think, do daylight savings time. That, that's like the sum total of it. Correctly. It's, it's got to come down to something like, you know, because the, the, the old, uh, the passed down wisdom of daylight mm-hmm. savings time is, oh, you know, like people who were farming and, mm-hmm. you know, had to get up at particular times. Now, I think it's really about banking. It's a hunt. Well, let's let's do some math here. Right. Of the of the individuals who who wake up and do work and go to sleep. Why do why would the farmers be the ones who cared at all about what time it was? Oh, they don't. Just get up with the sun. Just get up with the sun. Well, you got to get up. Care. You got to get up a couple hours. Eh. You got to get up a couple hours before the sun because you slop the pigs before you sure, go. Sure, you got to feed sun. the chickens and then what and what and what have you. But you know, before you get on the combine and get out there, you know, start wind rowing that wheat or whatever it is you do with a wind rowing machine. I heard machine. it was to. S- I heard it was to save energy or candle wax, but I can tell you anybody who has that has never had children because they leave the candles burning all night. They don't care. And me, I'm always doesn't matter what time and all I'm, day. I'm a 10x developer, so I'm crushing it. And guess what? I'm burning that candle at both ends. 
Uh, <laughs> interesting note. Interesting Ooch. note. You know the first. Who, who's the first person to ever suggest daylight savings time? Uh, Classically, so Benjamin Franklin. Yes, that is in fact true. Are you aware that it's satire? That it was satire. Really? He made it's like that the suggestion. Joke became the fact satirically. Yeah, he basically Streisand affected daylight savings time into existence. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Franklin. And, and the joke, the joke was it'll save on candles. Sarcasm. It'll save on candles. Sarcasm never pays no. off. Sarcasm never no pays off. No one understood it. Proof. This is like how when I was uh in my senior year and I was working on a design project like contest thing for NASA. My job, my my goal was to build a excavator for the moon. And somebody like our school newspaper or whatever was reporting on this and asked me what were the different ideas that you had. And I, like an idiot, jokingly said, well, I thought about building a giant vacuum cleaner first and just eventually figured out I wouldn't be able to get a power cord all the way up there to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And, (laughs) And like, they didn't get the obvious joke was, which is that, you know, a vacuum cleaner doesn't work in, the space. vacuum of space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they reported it like it was real. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's beautiful. That's on me. That one, you know what? That one's really on me. <laughs> that, that's that's that chef's kiss material right there. Yeah. <laughs> I know how we can get some funding to go go back to the moon if we really want to. We just get some physicists together to fake news and say that the moon is full of gold. I thought you were going to say we, that we need we to get up there and mine NFTs. it. We just tell well, them, we just say too. that there's NFTs on the moon. We just have to go get them. <laughs> They're in cold storage on with, the moon. It's, it's filled with NFTs and bitcoins. <laughs> and like hot pockets or something. Isn't that what you people eat? I don't know. <laughs> fun, fun story today. Uh, we uh, were poking around in... Uh, an unnamed package repository uh, that happened to have an ORM in it that we were interested in looking at. And, uh, you know, this package repository allows you to put hashtags on your packages for subjects. Mm-hmm. And this ORM has nothing to do with it at hashtag blockchain on it. I, nice. we, we thought, literally, it's probably s- sending people there because they're looking for blockchain stuff. And, you know, they need an ORM for their blockchain. Yep, I mean that makes the most sense. And I would. I. I, I would somebody say. picked that ORM based on that tag. Too, Probably. Already. Yeah. I was not aware until recently that the web that Web three was not just a term co opted by crypto bros, but was literally a JavaScript package. I didn't know that. What. I wasn't aware that when people were like, oh, yeah, Web3, because I kept seeing stuff like, does Phoenix work with Web3? And I'm like, what? (laughs) Those words don't make sense. Pump the brakes. What does this package do? Oh, it it makes it so that you can say that you're using Web3. Yeah, well, it makes your web app, you know, Web3 scale. (laughs) It's just three times more than Web scale, right? I assume it uses unsafe APIs 
that uh, talked to OpenSea or whatever the NFT API du jour is. That's what I. I'm going to start working on Web 8.6. There you go. Mm. That way, I don't have to worry. 3.1 was really that was that was the best. Web 3.1. No, that that was that that Web 3.1 was when I was booting floppy disks to run Wolfenstein. If I remember correctly. It's been a while since I had to shut down my computer, put a disc in, turn the computer back on to get the next game that I wanted mm-hmm. to play. Mm-hmm. I never really knew how to do it. I, I think I, I just muddled my way through it at the time. My uncle, I remember distinctly him making us when we would shut it down to get to the next game. He would tell us that you couldn't just boot it up right away again because of the heating and cooling of the components was hard on them. So we would have to wait 10 minutes. And we had a little like kitchen timer next to the computer and we would set it. And I think he was actually trying to get us to like get up and move around and do something mm-hmm. else more than more than he actually thought that the computer needed to cool down. He was Pomodoroing you. But we didn't get up and do anything else. We just sat and stared at the timer while we held the disc in our hand and looked at the pictures in the box for the next mm-hmm. game. <laughs> Makes sense. Didn't work. Didn't work. Couldn't get me outside. Now, now it's too cold today. So I'm still not going outside. <laughs> well, we've nearly burnt all of my possible time here today. <laughs> What this is perfect. Uh, what do you want to talk about? You, this is your show. I don't know. As soon as I, I, I no, it's not. What do you want to talk about? Uh, no, I just you're here now, and I was I'm sorry, surprised. I didn't think that you were going to show up. No, this I can is go. fantastic. <laughs> I missed you. Inconveniencing you. <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? I don't even know how to lead into this anymore. Just how do you how do you design functional APIs? in usable ways things that come to mind for me that i think are pretty powerful like ecto multi is a good functional api something along the same lines i think it's called sage or saga Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of does the same thing but you define your own rollbacks like those things are pretty powerful so how do you what and maybe this is a hard question this is a question that's been on my mind but how do you recognize places to do that in their code how do you see where you can pull those things out. And I, I, I'm asking the two of you because I needed somebody way over my pay grade to, to tell me about this. Cause I often don't, I don't reach for it. Even though I've used it a bunch of times, I've programmed things like that many times. It's still not what I reach for. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to recognize those situations myself. Yeah. Um, there's a blog post that may be relevant. Um, you know, it's a, it's about a different kind of programming paradigm, but I think the technique kind of works. It, uh, it resurfaced in, in, in my space this week because I was looking at something else and I just happened upon this author's blog again. I was like, oh yeah, let's look, poke through his stuff. Anyway, it's, um, Casey Muratori. He was speaker at the first PWL conf. Um, and, uh, the title of the blog post, if I recall correctly, is compression oriented programming. Um, and 
basically he goes through this process of showing you like a sample of code and like describing what he sees are difficult about it. And he says, well, let's take, let's take this one little concept and try to, you know, turn this thing that is kind of happening over and over. Um, that's not essential to the business of this particular piece of code. Um, it's like, you know, an accounting detail of, of the data structures they're working with or something. Um, and like reify that concept. So like turn it into a data structure, put some functions around it, and then like rewrite the, the code that's there to use that concept. And then he'll iteratively find that next level concept that is something that needs to be extracted and like the whole goal of this was not necessarily to you know build a tower of abstraction but it was like to give just enough but not too much context in each particular location so that you know you can come to that piece of code like figure out what's going on pretty quickly and and then do whatever modifications you need to 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 make and and this is this is like really different from the sort of you know object graph type of uh abstraction that you see in in a lot of uh programming languages where you're building up these big structures where objects are interrelated and in order to understand the behavior you have to follow all of the tendrils through through the application so he's saying you know you can even make these concepts local to the thing, to the to the module, to the file that you're in, whatever. But then that has its own life, and you can think of it as its own thing. Anyway, so it's so like back to your Ecto Multi, your you know Sage. Uh, you know, there's a lot of actually APIs in in Elixir that, or libraries in Elixir that have that sort of pattern of make a small data structure, a bunch of functions around it that contextualize. Like that thing, that data structure has its own meaning of this is a kind of task I want to accomplish, or this is like a goal I'm going after. And then all the functions you need uh, with that particular idea to manipulate and uh, to accomplish the task, to manipulate the data structure. And then when you're looking at a particular piece of code, you can kind of compress the parts of the task compress away, I guess is where hide is another way you might put it, the parts of the task that are essential, but not, um, they're, they're essential to the problem solving, but they're not essential to your understanding of the problem. Okay. I give you a very vague answer to your question, but this is something yeah, that came no, up this week. That was really good. And yeah, you, yeah, I, I, I already pulled up the, uh, the blog post too. Um, I'll tell everybody what it's called here. It is maybe maybe I gotta scroll all the way back up. Semantic compression. Yes, thank you. That's it. Um, Something that goes along with that in my mind, uh, and I think this is exemplified in Ectomulti and in the the Saga stuff that I've seen, and, and I actually think you could reduce this all the way down to um, just the task module. Is that all of them follow a similar pattern in that they hide the mechanics of a thing from you. So uh, let's call it the runtime. 
you know, at multi, Ecto Multi has a runtime built into it of how it executes stuff. Mm-hmm. The Saga stuff has a mul- a runtime, if you will, inside of it of how it's going to execute stuff. You you hand it all these these things, and then it executes them for you. And Task is the same way. You you know, it hides underneath it an actual process that's running somewhere, and you don't know a whole lot about how that thing runs, what it's actually doing. Um, mm-hmm. other than it conforms to the, it might be a gen server. I actually don't know it, it uh, uh, but, but at any case, it's either a gen server or it conforms to the special process magic that gen servers conform to, uh, and, mm-hmm. and other OTP processes, uh, conform to. And, um, w- the interesting paradigm there is they all do a similar thing. They expose to you a pretty limited set of functions and they invert control uh, back to you and you supply them with functions to execute. So that's, you know, that that's mm-hmm. like classical inversion of control. You're giving control back to the call site. You're just saying, I don't care how this gets executed. You're going to handle the execution, but I want to be able to plug into that. So and again, like that's mm-hmm. that's the inversion of control thing, and so you're just supplying functions. Um, those functions are not executed by you; they're delayed, uh, or I got they well, they are delayed in most cases until you run the thing. But really, the the better way to talk about it is you're handing it functions, and you're giving up the execution of those functions to a separate piece of machinery. But the cool part of that is if you hand them anonymous functions, you can still have access to the stack that you were in. So you can say, hey, take all this stuff with you, too. Mm-hmm. Or not, right? You, you could actually opt out of that as well if you have performance reasons for that. But, um, but it's actually like pretty beneficial to be able to say, hey, actually take this like whole environment with you <laughs> when you go. Um, because, you know, I can just have these variables like passed in with functions and stuff. Um, but those are really interesting hallmarks of good APIs in my mind. Uh, definitely very reusable APIs because you're really just abstracting Excellent. away the execution environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're attaching it to a data structure, which turns it into a sort of a more stateless operation. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're now interacting with just, hey, I'm just going to hand you some functions that I want you to kind of do stuff with. And then I don't really care how you execute them. Or more realistically, I probably do care, but what I want access to is I want to know, I want to be able to differentiate between success and failure. And I want to have, be able to take, you know, remediating actions depending on what happens. I want hooks into that, into that execution, into that life cycle. I think like Saga falls right into that. And I, I like that. <clears throat> I, didn't, I never thought of as taking the, execution context and putting it somewhere else that that helps i think know when to be reaching for this i think that's like the biggest part of all the the fp books and everything out there they're always like hey look at how enum module works like that's that's fp and then i'm like yeah i I got that like but where's that next level and where's that understanding comes from because that one's i don't know dealing with lists is pretty straightforward with FP, but then dealing with higher level concepts is not always as straightforward of, of recognizing when those are, 
are available to you. Yeah, and another thing you might look for is, is when you when you have those, I won't say orthogonal, but you have concerns that are intertwined in the same piece of code. So like you have something that looks like it could be a bash script in terms of style. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to have uh, concerns about, you know, preparing and then executing your your algorithm for whatever it needs to do. You're going to have concerns about logging, tracing. Um, if you're doing any of those things, you're going to have concerns about, uh, you know, state management um, that are external to that algorithm. If they're all smashed together, that's like a really good sign that um, maybe what you need to do here is take the stuff that's really procedural and in- inject it into something that can handle those those um, other concerns. Um, for like the the ecto multi the task thing is a is a good example of that where where um, you know like even with ecto multi you you're you're building up a set of steps that you want to take inside a transaction where you want checkpoints essentially and if you wrote that out you would have something that's really pretty ugly right mm-hmm. versus naming those checkpoints or those steps of the transaction and getting a result out that says, you know, here either succeeded and here's the result or all the results actually of each step sometimes. Uh, I don't recall exactly how the API works, but, um, or well, here's where it failed. Here's the step where it failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then that lets you create um, a, you know, an interface where those, maybe those steps are significant with respect to the semantics of your application. And then you can say, okay, well, we, we tried to uh, create a new organization with these users. We, we could create the organization that name was available, but these users are already registered or something like that. that that's the kind of like higher level control over the algorithm that you can get and extracting it from the, okay, I need to insert these records in this order um, sort, of, sort of problem. And that's, that's a dumb example, but... It's to me. It's all about pulling apart the the concerns that are not directly related to the thing I'm trying to accomplish. I think it also has this. I think we've done well. It also has a knock on benefit of all of your various functions that you're using uh, in your individual steps. These things are can now be much more reusable and. Uh, Task is is my kind of like go to example for this thing, like because it's just so straightforward um, in, in most cases. But you take, I mean, task is awesome because you can just take a generic function, any function that does anything, and lift it into the context of running it in parallel, right? Or mm-hmm. running it concurrently, or running it in a different process somewhere so it's fault tolerant. Like you just get that. Like task just says, eh, "Give me a function and I'll make it, I'll make it concurrent for you." And which means you can take any function and lift it into that context, which is really cool. That's a really, really, really nice thing because what that implies is that uh, if we have enough of these sort of mechanisms, right? Like if we have enough of these sort of runtime execution model mechanisms that let you lift things up into them, what that means is that we can build systems out of many fewer parts. Because you don't need a function that is create users async and you don't and you have create users and create users async or create users and also organizations. 
you have a create users and create organizations and you reuse those things in different contexts. That's like, I think a big goal uh, in my mind. And something I actually see people sort of like hamstringing themselves a little bit on. Like I see people hide Ecto Multi a lot. Um, I see people hide tasks a lot inside other functions. And there's a benefit to, there are certain designs where you might want to do that. But I think in many cases, uh, we want that all pretty high level. And then the lower level thing should, should just do the lower level thing. Like keep that isolated away from the sort of runtimey bits of it. Uh, as as much as possible, because then you can reuse it in all these other contexts. And to me, that's um, that becomes very very useful long term. To in order to have a small self contained set of APIs. Yeah, and that would be harder if you if you stuffed those things together, because maybe later down the road you decide, okay, we're you know we need to reduce the the rate. That these things are coming in because we're getting really hammered. So instead of calling the thing directly in the current process, instead of spawning a task as you need it, uh, or spawning a task as part of that function, maybe you you put that function into some kind of of queue of over this domain so you can limit the rate mm -hmm. of consumption of that queue. And now you have like okay, I have twenty of these processes in parallel. But that's a separate component from the, here's what I need to do inside that process. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons I kind of harp on people. Um, I, I get this is going to sound like not uh, related. It's related in my mind. Maybe just because my brain is weird. But it's one of the reasons I harp on people who sort of pipe what, you know, what would I call like the elixir result, <laughs> which is just, you know, the OK error tuple into the next function, and then the next function knows how to like lift that out or not. Well, now all those functions are not reusable in like wider contexts. Like, that's why we have with, is like with allows mm -hmm. you to lift er okay and error tuples, like it lets you lift out the values and pass them on to the next thing. And, and it's similar in my mind because I think when we hide away a lot of the runtime machinery and when we hide, try to hide things like results, we make all those functions less usable in a wider range of contexts. And it's very beneficial to peel them all apart. Even if they are doing lots and lots of procedural stuff inside of them, which they often are, it's nice to be able to peel all that stuff apart so you can kind of make it part of this more generic piece. But I will also say making finding those generic pieces is, is sometimes difficult uh, in an application. And I think it often is easier to see them when they're as generic as something like ectomulti. And I think that's a little bit why ectomulti gets, I'm going to say abused because it, you know, like you, you should not be calling a, an API inside an ectomulti. I'm just going to say it there. I said it. It's my personal opinion. We have all seen that. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's like a multi run. It literally doesn't work. Like a multi run. <laughs> Um, but I think that I think one of the reasons that that exists like that is because it's readily at hand. It's already built and it sort of slots in with with the rest of what you got going on. Typically speaking, in many ways, it feels a little silly to reinvent that kind of le level of machinery for everything. Right. Um, yeah. 
So I think that I, I do think it's difficult to sometimes find those things, those sorts of like more, more generic ideas, which is why design's hard because ge- design is a lot of about pulling apart specific from generic. Man. Now I want to ask because like I have, I have a multi, right. And at the very end of it, I call a run that calls out to a, a an, an external service to index uh, about the stuff that we just changed for search. So, and so you, like, I'm if like, that's the last step, that? you better be pulling that out. <laughs> it is the last step. I mean, it's obvious you probably don't want to call that if your transaction failed, right? Right. So I don't want it unless at the end. And also if it fails, I'd like to roll everything back. Maybe. Oh, probably. Mm. I don't know. That's an know. interesting choice. I don't I mean, know. That, maybe that makes I, sense. I don't know. I don't. I don't know either. Um, or maybe the search service needs to. This is a secondary have, index, obviously. Yeah, this is like like uh, it's not Elasticsearch, but it's like Elasticsearch, mm-hmm. right? So like, I need to I need to update that external index that our search is gotcha. using. Otherwise, users get a little bit like, "Whoa, wait, what's going on?" So. Can, can I pose a question on that? Mm-hmm. What's the harm of of poking that external index Sean is, to Sean's refresh? Being so nice, <laughs> if, even, even if the transaction fails. Uh, oh, nothing. But what is the harm of having the data in the database go through if the indexing fails? That's the well, yeah, I, I, I guess the, the assumption here is you're already in an um, probably realistically inconsistent situation, optimistically, eventually consistent uh, with yeah. these two systems. And and I, I think from my perspective, and I've seen this in like apps I've worked on, too, and I like try to convince people to pull these. You don't need to be doing this API call inside this transaction. Do it before or after and like make a decision based on whichever result you care about. Um whether you continue the other step. Uh, but uh, the with a search system specifically, uh, they're usually expected to be have a little bit of latency. And I, I, I don't think that, like, so what, what you don't want to do is you don't want to confuse your developers by tying the success or failure of a service that is unrelated to the integrity of the data to the integrity of the data. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the cert, if it's a search system or, or something like that, some kind of secondary index, that's kind of, uh, you know, expected to give approximate results, right. Which is a different, different paradigm than I have the IDs of these things. They either exist or they don't. Yeah. I mean, I think at minimum, I would be inclined to uh, fail forward at at the, at the very least for the search index. This is again my intuition, which is based on like, I mean, it, it like I said, it's just intuition. I kind of tend to view any secondary index that you're building is almost always wrong. You should just always assume it's wrong at any given time, because let lest we all forget. 
eventual consistency is just a nice way of saying inconsistency. <laughs> yeah. So inconsistency at the current time. Right. Yeah. yeah right. Oh, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. Here. Uh, and maybe you guys stay and talk about this. Maybe you don't. Maybe somebody just tells us uh, what their thoughts are. But uh, let me give you a scenario. Okay of how this is used. Um, this is not exactly, but I, I thought of it is let's say that you have a system that helps you, um, run your business. Right. And you, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you import a list of people, uh, employees. Right. And it needs to be like, like maybe one of your main interfaces to get to um, certain people is like, maybe there's just so many of them that it actually is the search. Right. And so if that indexing fails, like after you import, we drop you directly into like the list of employees and you need to be able to, to search for somebody in there and get to like what projects maybe they're working on. So that's all listed in there too. And part of the search. So you can search for a project, you can search for the people and it gives you the people on the project or like, here's the people that have that first name, um, John, whatever. So it's almost like expected to be nearly immediately available. Yeah. And I, I think my, my next intuition there is let's not conflate a system condition with a, a user experience condition. And if, if the, if the requirement is as soon as that list of employees is available, I need to be able to search it. Don't give back the list of employees until you are certain that it's been indexed and keep retrying that indexing. And, but like the essential, I think, uh, I think about search indexes are that you can always rebuild the index from the original data. So worst case, you're re-indexing your whole database. And and if you imported eight hundred people, at least you don't have to import them again. Right, it's just extra time. So right, so so yeah. like let's, so now I let's want to process fail. somewhere else that <laughs> yeah. is trying to index and lets us know when it's also done. Worth, okay. yeah. Also worth noting, a lot of times those APIs for indexing, I don't know what you're using, but a lot of times it'll start indexing and say, okay, I started indexing, and then you actually either need to pass it a flag that says, but don't. But don't be done until you're done. Don't return okay yeah. until you're or, done. Or have a callback. Or, call or have a yeah, call check on yeah. it later. And we do have a callback. Um, and that can so take non-trivial can get, time. It, it can get weird sometimes uh, because we do have a callback that will pop up like a, a message. Because we don't want to change what the user's seeing. Like if they've already started to search and they're getting ready to click something. So we have a little pop-up that comes up. And I hate this. but I. And you hit have it has like a it says hey we've indexed this many new things I don't think that's the wording and there's a button that says refresh on that pop up mm-hmm. like refresh your list here that way if you we don't refresh the list automatically because what happens if you are getting ready to click on one of those employees and now there's like ten new ones in there and so now you're clicking on a new one so instead we have a little button that says hey we've done this if you want the new results. You can hit refresh and we'll research for you. Otherwise, you can just leave it alone. When you come back, it'll be okay. So maybe that's the secret to it. I think either way, my 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 sort of final thoughts on like the this on your 
on the Ecto Multi thing specifically is number one, obviously, I think having something like multi is really useful in this case because it does let you break apart all these various functions and steps into into and to think about them as units and then compose them into this more useful thing. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So that that should that should be noted. I also think that uh, this is a scenario. This specific scenario is one where, just because of my experience and the kinds of stuff I've worked on, I am always inclined to close the database transaction and give that connection back ASAP. And it may be one of those things where even if you want to do a rollback, you do a saga style. I don't know. This is not the right way to talk about this, right? There's there's words to describe this, but (laughs) you know, the way you do this kind of thing in sagas is it's like, well, I need to roll back. Well, a rollback is just delete the thing that you just added. Like, you know, or, or send it, it just, all you're doing is creating a remediation. You're saying, I want to undo the thing I did. And that's a manual process. And so perhaps if you do decide that failing forward is not the correct approach, that actually, no, indexing the second thing really does, we really have to have that be, you know, as consistent as possible. I think I would number one try to get out of that, you know, get out of that discussion. But if that's really what needs to happen, like you really need to roll it back, then you may be better served by doing a by finalizing the creation transaction and then creating a secondary process that goes back and undoes it. That gets you into other inconsistent things because. You know, you're un, like for some amount of time, your database is quote unquote wrong with how mm-hmm. the view of the world is supposed to be. Like it's fuzzy, right? And it, since we're already using the callback, I think actually like storing something somewhere that says, here's the indexing that still needs to be done or that we've sent off and having that, having some, some other process that can come around once in a while and say, Hey, we never got a response for them or we got an error response from them. We need to re-index everything or whatever we need to do. That's probably way better of a solution anyway. Well, especially too, because with sagas, you really have to care about um, final, like what finalization means, like what does confirmed Mm -hmm. actually mean? And sagas really shine when you when it's really clear <laughs> like like i'm going across yeah. three different services it's like uh like katie's talk forever ago now um as i guess it, i think it was at strange loop was that strange loop it's probably a strange loop about about sagas and talking about it's one of those conferences maybe go to one of those talking about like i'm booking a trip i want to book a hotel and a flight and a car and if any of those fails i want to cancel my car and cancel my trip and cancel my flight like that's really obvious, but that is kind of the way you have to think about it, which means you also need a journal of everything that's happening and all. And so you can know what's finalized, what's actually finished to completion, what got, what failed. And it also means you need to kind of know like, Hey, I wrote this to the database, but then the app crashed. And, and now I don't have any record of, but the, like the thing downstream failed. Now my remediation steps got deleted. Like I don't know what now I've got orphaned incorrect data or whatever it is. So those aren't those aren't without their price either. Right. You know, you you could I, I don't see this happening enough. 
from applications <laughs> generally. You have to go. Bye, Amos. Go. Bye, Amos. You guys can listen to this later. Great. We're going to tell you how to live your life. Just tune in. I like it. <laughs> See you guys. Bye, Amos. So, as I was trying to say, as Amos was jetting out the door, <laughs> I, I, there, there's a thing that was impressed upon me early, I would say like three or four years into doing web development, generally speaking, with dat- database-backed applications, mm-hmm. is that we don't enough treat processes, and I mean like workflow processes or um things things that have multiple steps as things in themselves and and like ecto multi i think brings this to the level of this is a concept you can you can manipulate inside your program but it might even be useful to treat that multi-step process as something that is exposed as a concept in your application so i think the best example of of this is um of a successful one mm-hmm. I've seen is uh, in the S3 API, the Amazon S3 API. Uh, and that's multi-part uploads. So this is a workflow that you execute via the API. You say, I want to create a multi-part upload to this bucket and key. Um, and and then you start sending portions as separate a- API calls. Mm-hmm. You can do a certain number of them in parallel. Mm-hmm. And then on the back end, S3, and you then you at some point say, hey, I'm done. Um, and the, at the back end, S3 will stitch those things together, however it does, and you don't have to care about it. But then you're not limited by the, like, whatever five megabytes or something it is in a single payload. You can send a, you know, one terabyte dump if right, you want. Right, But But that's, that's a way that, like, y- y- most of the time people are so focused on CRUD, they, like, don't go above the level of the basic elements of their domain and they go to the like this example importing users that's that's a an operation you're performing across lots of different base level things of your domain Mm -hmm. but maybe that operation is a thing in itself and like in amos's example you know you maybe one of the steps is you index like maybe you you should track that workflow in your database like say hey i got the csv file of mm-hmm. all the employees mm-hmm. like that's step one and then i executed the transaction and at the end of that transaction i say hey the like the import is complete mm-hmm. and then some other process goes off and like fires off the indexing and has whatever resilience it needs to like make sure that, that indexing completes or restarts or whatever and then when it gets a confirmation it can mark its progress into that same record right and and then you have like you an import is a concept Instead of just, oh, here, take the CSV file. <laughs> right. right, 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 yeah. Interesting, yeah. So it's, it's, it's continuing, it's pushing more of those base level operations higher, higher up in the stack so that, you know, other people can actually utilize them. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's... It, it's so yeah that's a super interesting concept and i think it it makes a lot of sense it's so interesting watching how much rest crud type stuff like all that got like real intermingled with each other and how much it turned the web world 
how, how weird web development got, like how, how awkward mm-hmm. web development got in a lot of ways. Because it's, I think there's so much about CRUD operations that you would never do. Like that's what we consider like an API, but we would never do those sorts of things to each other in real code. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> we would not do that to each other. Like an import. It, like just even the notion of import. Well, that, that's not one of my four or five verbs. Okay. Like, right. <laughs> I don't right. know what you're talking about. Wait, am I creating an import? <laughs> like, and I'm sure there's some, you know, crud person who like real big diehard crud person who like would explain why I'm wrong, you know, using some sort of reasoning, but. Yeah. But, th- but then there's so many APIs that like you say, they're just crud. Yeah. There's like, yeah. why, why didn't you just give me access to the database right. with restrictions? Like, uh, you know, I, I don't need to be uh, like shuttling JSON blobs of your ideas of what the thing is back and forth. I want something that's useful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are the, these are the getters and setters of, yeah. of, of <laughs> API development, which no one, I don't think anyone thinks are good. Those get auto-generated now. <laughs> Even in Java, you just auto-generate those things. You know, you got some Lombok annotations in there, and then you're good to go. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You don't, you know, nobody writes those by hand anymore, I don't think. Um, yeah, or, or or they're like gRPC or or OpenAPI or something in there, yeah. like all generated code. Uh, yeah, but even the gRPC thing, at least it's RPC. Where mm-hmm. where RPC, I think the the thing that actually is is something reasonable to take away is that it's it's like procedure calls. It's like do this thing, and we've and we've stopped pretending. I think. For the most part, we've we've largely stopped pretending that calls made on a different box are the same thing as calls made on your box. Oh, I hope. <laughs> I think I think we've largely <laughs> given up that idea. Like even gRPC, which is you know like probably had the most likelihood to walk that dark hand, the left the left hand path, um, is is reasonable in that they're like, nah, like you're going over a wired. Like, I mm-hmm. think it's still pretty obvious, but at least then you have actual operations. Now, granted, they're all defined in protobuf and protobuf is, you know, incredibly meh, but uh, just like the most just meh. It's just meh, meh, not even like Procrustean, which is what I was going to say. I mean, it's like <sighs> protobuf, especially protobuf three, just feels like the world's biggest consolation prize. Mm. You know, it's just like we couldn't whatever. You know what? It doesn't matter. We're giving up on required I just, fields. Just whatever. You know? Do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what it feels like. Somebody just like threw in the towel and was like, I don't know. M- Middleest common denominator. Um, but no, I think at least in that regard, there's APIs are sort of APIs, like they're they're real things that do that don't just manipulate an object, um, mm-hmm. or the notion of an object. That's super interesting. Yeah, I'm all twisted up thinking about that. That's really really interesting, and it feels like it feels like the right thing. In the same way that I think the the notion of gRPC feel not gRPC uh, the notion of something like GraphQL, let's say, feels like the right thing. Like I want to give control back 
to a to a higher to to the people who are actually calling these APIs. Like uh, I don't know, you tell me what you want, I'll just go get it for you. GraphQL has a bunch of other problems, but it definitely got a lot closer to that, and and that feels like that same notion of like actually like why don't you figure it out? Like you do whatever you need to do, then you can compose these API calls in whatever way you want to. That feels pretty cool. Yeah, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking a lot about that now, and how you would do that, and and how it would be, uh, how how it would be both both safe and also like where do you draw the lines and i guess that's a philosophy of software design problem still it's like you don't want to expose a whole bunch of nonsense functions to people you want to give them the one function that basically does what they think it should do and like right. and that's it <laughs> yeah um yeah that's super interesting well i you know it's just as easy unfortunately uh, to expose your database via GraphQL mm -hmm. or expose it via gRPC um, w without taking into consideration like the things that your application is actually trying to do. Yeah. It's easy to fall into that trap. It's the microservices trap. But yeah, I, I guess I, I agree with you. At least gRPC gives you, hey, this is a call. This is like a command, mm -hmm. basically, mm -hmm. instead of a, well, there's this resource out right. there yeah. on this other server that you can poke <laughs> at. <laughs> and you can create or replace it or update yeah. it, you know, if you want to. <laughs> like, no, I don't want to do any of those things. <laughs> that was a, that's, yeah, that's not I, what I want. I, I have, you know, I, I, I don't want to rag on it too much because I actually think there's a lot of promise there. It's just average programmers are not going to really leverage the power of Rust. Mm -hmm. And especially if you like want to include the hypermedia constraint in it, mm -hmm. they're really not going to leverage it. Uh, so what are you left with? You're left with uh, a verbose transport format and a verbose encoding format yep. for your messages. And well, that kind of sucks in general. Over a head of line blocking uh, yes. <laughs> RPC call. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you know, with that opens and closes back in the day. That opens and closes TCP connections every single time. Yeah. So yeah, it's really, yeah, yeah. It's all. <laughs> I get why. I kind of get why it like didn't. It, the rest thing didn't work out <laughs> in a lot of ways for people because it's just a lot of stuff. Yeah, I don't know, but I think. I think also it. it it unfortunately got mapped to, like very closely into all of the, oh, well, like you just have resources and then you make CRUD operations on top of them. And yeah. that's such a, it's such a limiting view of how, of how we should think about building APIs. Yeah. I don't know. We do all this. We, we talk so much about like writing code uh, for each other, essentially for our teammates in our in our microservice or in our whatever in our application and like how do we build APIs that hide complexity and, and do abstractions around things and then like what we give to our users or to external people is like the worst garbage <laughs> like we would not yeah. want to you know we would <laughs> not true. wish on each other like I don't want to deal with that you know but, but here's what I'll give to you I'll just give you just the worst possible getter and setter interface for to doing what you want to do um, yeah, that's super interesting to me. 
Yeah. Well, and I think both at the software level and and you know in things that go across the network, we uh, there's a lost art to interface design to protocol design, and um, and maybe I don't know maybe the things that have survived uh, have survived for reasons that we have not really understood, um, or or we have forgotten. But it looks like nobody knows how to design stuff anymore mm-hmm. um, at for 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 network services that communicate with one another um and you know that may be an aspect of we've just made it really easy uh to do and so people do the simplest thing that works or the easiest thing is probably the better way to put it some of them are kind of complicated but they're they were easy to to bang out the code it i mean it just strikes me that i don't know it's it's not even it's not even interesting <clears throat> or funny anymore to, to pull out the old Ginsburg. Yeah, I saw the, I saw the best minds of my generation, you know, oh, yeah. bloody and <laughs> NFTs and writing Jason APIs by hand. Like that's not funny anymore because <laughs> it's so trite. Um, but there is something to it where I think, um, yeah, I mean, hell we had, we had logic programming languages in what the sixties. Definitely 70s. And it just seems as though, sure, like we we have all these computers, they're all networked together, they talk over this stuff, but we're still writing largely, writing APIs by hand, writing Mm -hmm. interfaces by hand, writing clients for said interfaces by hand. And in many ways, it's like, but we we were shown the way like 50 60 years ago where like there's really no reason you couldn't write a program you know you couldn't design your program such that it's like i don't know figure it out i don't know like yeah. talk to that other machine and you like work out you all work out the, make the computers work out how to talk to each other and get the data that i want or 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 you make some change that i want and maybe there's like a maybe there's like a like a you know immutable law of the universe thing like maybe there's like some sort of universality you know, incompleteness thing that says we can't actually do this, but it does strike me that like we're writing, we're spending we're wasting an inordinate amount of time in the ways that we talk to systems on the internet uh, and, and just services generally when it's like you could you could envision a world where you could kind of just sit, like give it a bunch of predicates and be like, I don't know, you guys figure this out. Mm-hmm. Like make it all about the, the, the exchange, like put, make all the interesting bits, that intermediate part. Yeah. I think I, I like that idea a lot. Uh, unfortunately it's been my experience that we, we don't have pure abstractions in, in any system that we've built. Uh, even the best built systems don't have them. And, and it's that those, those non-functional aspects of the system come through and become essential aspects of the system. Uh, like, you know, this is going to be dumb, but are you running on a Unix-like operating system with the POSIX file system, you know, API? Like, that's an essential thing of so many applications. Right. And it affects how you write it. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's like the, the constraints of the thing that you're building on top of 
influence the the constraints that you have. Mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. you can you can kind of paper those over with many layers. Um, you know, you can have your your magical, you know, logic program. You know, do that. But at some layer, there are going to be concerns that uh, ripple out and leak or leak through. Is another way to put it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really hard to contend with. You know, what, what was the the old adage that you know programs would be would be perfect if you didn't have to do any I/O. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Erlang is like Haskell, except instead of uh, except Erlang runs on the Erlang virtual machine and Haskell runs in your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's so beautiful in my imagination. In my imagination, it's great. In production, it seg faulted immediately. <laughs> That's my one experience with deploying Haskell. <laughs> in my imagination, it ran great, and in production, it immediately panicked <laughs> because <laughs> because I accidentally used head. Ah, I used and you didn't know the length of the list. Uh, I used head and it was a nil or it was empty. It was an empty list accidentally. It's so panic. Whoops. Whoopsie. <laughs> but it was <laughs> but it was pure. <laughs> Grade A fresh cut pure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's I think I think that's right. It's actually why I've really enjoyed going back uh, to embedded stuff a little bit mm-hmm. because it's just nothing. It's great in a lot of ways. In some way, there, I mean, it's not there's nothing, no tower nothing, to topple, but yeah, but you're the tower, you know, you just build your own yeah. tower out of your own bricks out of, out of the clay that you made, you know, it's, there's something kind of, I think there's, that's why there's a little bit, um, there's something appealing about that mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and it, it obviously has its own abstractions and there's so many other layers. If you were to try to actually get back down to something that actually resembled low level, <laughs> like at a, at that, at a, at a, at a real, real low level, low level. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, there's something sort of like, Oh, I don't have to worry about this. And there's also a little bit of freedom in that, it's just like a bunch of mutable variables and stuff. And like, nobody cares. Like nobody cares. Like you're just slamming a bunch of mutable state around just, you know, bit shifting stuff into registers and like, uh, whatever. (laughs) Like it just feels good. (laughs) It feels like, it feels liberating in that you're like, I don't care. Abstractions, protocols, APIs, (laughs) pshaw. Like, (laughs) Why do I need any of that? Yeah, there's something sort of very like cowboy e, you know, you're just on the open range. Yeah. Feels kind of fun. I suppose a, ni- a nice thing about that too is then you can kind of, if you want to build an abstraction for later use, you can decide which things leak through and in what way. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, obviously, you're going to be constrained by the device that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to have certain characteristics. That regardless of what program you write on top, those things are going to be present. Yeah, um, and but. and there are a bunch of abstraction layers around stuff that you do end up building, especially if you start delving into like the RTOS world. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of just stuff that gets piled on top of the other stuff, and you know, uh, halls on top of halls, and and all kinds of things. So you, you do get into that for sure, but it's just there's a certain amount of like. It's it is it is weirdly cathartic 
to write a bootloader. (laughs) 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 Just a tiny little C app that all it does is boot things. (laughs) That feels weirdly cathartic. Yeah, I, at times that I've spelunked into operating systems looking at those, I was like, you, you go looking there and you're like, oh, this has got to be some arcane thing. You look at it and like, it's really just poking some registers yeah. and then jumping to a location yep. and then you're <laughs> and done. Then that's it. Like, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> that's all, that's all it is. <laughs> yep. I was, I've been, I've been learning, I've been working on doing firmware updates of, of, of a variety of stripes, right? You know, trying to get my head around um, how this is actually done in the real world. And that's definitely interesting because it's like, oh man, there's just so many ways that it fails. And when it fails, it's catastrophic because you brick the device mm-hmm. if you screw any of yep. the underlying systems up. And so the way that you, the way that people tend to break that problem down, a- along with like the security aspects of like, well, there has to be like, um, you know, some sort of like, source of trust so that you can actually verify that you got the correct firmware. So people can't put like bad firmware on your device and all this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, but a lot of the programs and a lot of those programs are complicated in as much as like, they can't really, you you need to make them so you don't break the device. But also those programs are pretty like straight ahead. It really is like, mm-hmm. well, this is where it's going to be on the flash. So like, just load it. <laughs> like go, like yeah. load it and go. <laughs> <laughs> Feels good. Yeah. Do you, do you have to do things like uh, have two flashes and uh, flip between them? Yeah. Or like segment them, like have enough mm-hmm. room to be able to say like, I need to be able to jump between these two things. It's like blue green deploys, but with firmware basically. Yeah. And there's, there is some interesting stuff uh, that that I saw recently where I think it's Amazon was doing like Delta firmware updates, which Mm -hmm. is to say they, you know, you've got firmware and there's probably some chunk of the binary that actually changed and some chunk that didn't. And so just send the chunk that did change. And so they're sending deltas. It's like, like patching your AAA yep. game, yep. right? You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but they're like, but for firmware. And it was terrifying to me when I read it. I was like, how does this work? <laughs> like, this is awful. Um, there are so many potential failure cases in that. Oh, yeah. Like, what if you, what if you sent the wrong patch to a running system? Or it didn't apply them in the same in the correct order. Mm-hmm. I think that I don't want to. I don't want to call down the. I don't want to call down the crypto boys. But I think I do think part of the solution rhymes with Smirkle Streets. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's part of it. <laughs> when I was looking at that would make sense Amazon's thing, but it actually it's really cool because like you can what the in theory you can send it over real small channels so if you're only mm-hmm. connected over let's say bluetooth or over um like some of the radios i've been playing with are these laura radios l-o-r-a yep. are you familiar with those yep laura Wan. yeah yep. i i was i had i was not familiar with with that up until um i started researching this stuff um they're really cool i built a little um 
I, I built a, an Elixir library to interface with these modems, um, which is pretty, pretty fun. Just talks SPI. It's pretty, pretty straight ahead. And nice. um, yeah, I've been able to send with just like kind of some off the shelf antennas. I've been able to send it like well, well, well over three kilometers. Uh, last I checked, I think with, and that's like through trees and stuff like, and they draw like milliwatts of power. They draw, they, it's nothing. Yeah. They're crazy. Super cool. But in, in any case, those only, you know, those have an MTU, assuming you put no encryption on the thing. You know, that, that has an MTU of like 250 bytes, 255 bytes. And it can take seconds, long seconds <laughs> to, to send mm-hmm. that one packet. So if you can send, obviously, smaller firmware chunks, then, then that's nicer. But yeah, it, it seems rife with, with problems. <laughs> wow. Uh, d- does it do retransmission? Like, do you have Mm-mm. to... No, you have to do it yourself no. if you want to. Yeah, these are pretty bare bones, right? So hmm. if you want to do retransmission, you kind of have to do it yourself, at least on, the, on these chips. And also same with like encryption and stuff like that. So if you want to do encryption, you need to do it yourself, um, which isn't too bad. You can use AES for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, that, and then you don't end up I'm forgetting all the numbers now, but you end up with an MTU of around 100 bytes okay. with like AES-128. Yeah. yeah. Assuming that you can share that passcode and you're cool with sharing the passcode on either side, uh, similar mm-hmm. to like a Wi-Fi you know, setup, then like AES-128, which I think is secure enough. I don't remember. I need to like do some more research, but whatever. But I think with that, you end up with something like 100 bytes of workable data that you can actually send. And then the way I did it with mine is, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, this Stevens Unix book, how to build reliable broadcast with UDP. You know, it's like you send the thing and you set a timer. And if you haven't heard back, you send it again and you keep track of integer values and, you know, you reorder stuff on the other end and all that kind of stuff. So it's, that's what I ended up doing. That's interesting. I suppose you don't have to, or maybe you do, maybe it's just like lost packets, but you don't have to deal with congestion control, do you? Uh, you just like static timeouts. Yeah, uh, they're basically static timeouts. Yeah, I mean, I think you would in really, you would need to deal with it in real dense areas that had lots of radio mm-hmm. traffic going on. Yep. Because there's no, it's just radio waves, right? It's just waves going out into the ether. <laughs> and so anybody can listen <laughs> to them. So there is some amount of throttling you would want to do, I think. And um, it, it strikes me that there, there is in like real congested, uh, or not necessarily congested, but real dense, radio dense networks where, we, where, we're, where what we're dealing with is not at all. So they're too far apart. Yeah, they're too far apart. There's nothing else really around them to speak of. Mm-hmm. I guess if you wanted to be a total jerk, you could come in and like flood the airwaves around us <laughs> with 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 packets. <laughs> like I'm sure some nation state knows how to do that. <laughs> like, you know, or whatever. Um, 
I'm sure I'm sure some individual probably knows how to do that. I, hell, I don't know if it would even be that complicated. But yeah, I, I you know, it's like I'm not right now. That's I'm not defending against any of that. Um, so yeah, so right now we do static, just like well, I think they're still random, but they're they're capped um, pretty aggressively. If I remember correctly. How, what am I doing? Now, now I have to think about this. It's been a minute since I worked on this. I think what I was doing is keeping track of the round trip time of... From, from like the packet you sent to the act. Yes. And I was keeping track of that and then that adjusts and then I dynamically adjust the retry timeout based on that plus like a multiplying factor. So like an AIMD? Kinda. Yeah, basically, it's it's very close to AIMD, if I'm thinking about it. Kind of. Because it, well, no, because it, I just, it's it's not quite exponential back off, or exponential mm-hmm. timeouts, because we're still picking uniform random values between the, the, like, base timeout, and the base timeout's basically, like, what's my average for getting an ACK back? Um, and that starts out at some relatively high number and sort of course corrects right. and then tries to find the control point that keeps everything working well, but then adds jitter into there. So that mostly so that the two radios don't get into a loop where they start calling each other because the radio is not right. bimodal. It's it's it can only send or receive. And so if you're both sending and then you move into receive modes then no one adheres you on the other side. So you, you, you can right. get into those scenarios. It's like the raft thing of like two, two nodes start elections at the same time. And in theory, raft could just forever get deadlocked and two nodes starting elections at the same time <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you combat that by making it random and hoping. <laughs> uh, similar thing. Yeah. I remember back in the, uh, the, uh, days of helping customers with their react clusters that um so often we would find that people would have like minimum latencies Mm -hmm. of something like 20 or 40 or 80 milliseconds or something like that and like anytime that those particular numbers jumped up we're like hmm Mm. that sounds like your tcp stack is tuned to a particular like back off. <laughs> Let me tell you about a man named Nagel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was a real son of a gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So is it is it literally just yeah, so like go in and uh and turn off TCP no delay and, yeah. and stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Have you, okay, this is, have you ever gone and looked at the, uh, the IETF RFCs, uh, of which I'm sure you're, you're intimately familiar with a number of them. Have you ever gone and like started at one? Uh, a long time ago, I think I tried that. And, you know, the first Several, no, maybe several <laughs> RFCs are kind of like kind of trippy, yeah, or they're lost, yeah, they don't exist anymore, yeah. yeah. I they're also about a essentially like a uh, a prototype 
not prototype, uh, a the the early version of what would come to be known as routers. Yeah, they're about those things, whatever those things were called, something gateways like uh, mm. they're they had some name. Anyway, I don't know why this came up, but it worked the other day. We randomly showed we were talking to like a, one of the mechanical engineers, I think. And he was like, what are these? And I'm like, oh, these are like the specs for the Internet. Yeah, like, this is this is this, <laughs> you know, this is everything. This is all the Internet. And he's like, this is so cool. This is just like a thing that exists. And I'm like, you, you he's like, it's so great. This is so complete. <laughs> and like, it's all right there. <laughs> I was like, you think that <laughs> he's yeah. like, this is so thorough. <laughs> I was like, yeah, except it doesn't, it doesn't include any of those things that are in like the OSI model mm -hmm. or any of the things related to any of those like ISO 880X mm -hmm. stuff. None of that's in there, but yeah, all the software and like network layer stuff is, is there for the internet. I was like, but also pay, pay close attention to those like servers may implement this this way. <laughs> Right, <laughs> those will get you. The language, <laughs> those yep. will get you. But um, but yeah, we we randomly open that up and we're looking at like, uh, at, at you know RFC one. I think I went through one through, I don't know, fifty something like that. Just like clicking mm -hmm. through them, and a lot of them are about these gateway computers and how they're going to manage them or whatever. And I don't actually know if they really use them for all that long before they, before you know. The switch and before they became like dedicated hardware. Yeah, well, and I think yeah. in a lot of ways it 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 was it's like it's like looking at the birth of what would become DNS, BGP, routing tables, ARP. <laughs> like like it was like yeah. watching that happen is really kind of the the it was weird. It was very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. I had a, oh my God, I had a reason to bring all that up, but it's long gone. <laughs> that was lost a second ago. That's it right. was lost forever. It's a time. That's probably a good place to call it then. Yeah. We've lost the thread. I've lost, uh, yeah. I don't know that we had one, but but it's definitely gone now. Yeah. All right. Well, thank, thanks to everybody who stuck on to the end. Yeah. To this, this journey through the woods <laughs> on the meandering path. All right. Uh, well, Amos. I don't know. Get your HTTP calls out of your database transactions. Come on. Be real, man. That's all. That's my only advice. Yep. All right. Let's do it. Cool. Thanks. Good talking to you, Keithley. Later.